this morning, just by way of observation, for those of you who typically um, look at the outline, and like I do when I'm visiting in other churches and sitting under other speakers, I kind of go by, if they have an outline, I go by and I check. So you're going to, you know, it's like, okay, introduction, check. First point, check. Second point, check. Well, if you're doing that, you're going to have to leave a long check on the introduction. The introduction this morning is probably going to be half of the message, and it's going to be like too many messages, as it were. In the 25 minutes that I have left, I want to, I want us to look at Jesus Christ praying. And you're going to observe that he takes the position and the role of a high priest. And the high priest represents the people to God and then interceding for the people and speaking of their their needs. God speaks to the high priest and he validates and affirms his will and his promises and the priest turns and represents God to the people. And I want you to see Christ doing that this morning. And I want you to see that he, he asks and makes three promises to God that God the Father affirms. They are so one, so of one purpose and one mind, that Jesus asks for and receives a pledge, a promise of God to deliver. And the three things that he asks for as promises that God will deliver on are this, are these. Number one, he asks for protection. And protection in the midst of a world that will hate them. Number two, he asks for purity. He asks for them to be made holy. That's sanctified, set apart, and not only set apart, for God's use and service as holy men and women, but declared holy. Not only set apart in reserve, but actually saying, I've set them apart and I declare them holy. And that, in the midst of God, in God's presence. And then number three, that they would be perfectly one. That is, perfectly is like the robe of Jesus that the guards would roll the die for, it would be seamless. It would be without bumps or wrinkles or kind of stitched in there that to look at Christian men and women, that you would see that they're perfectly one. And not only one with one another, but one cosmically with the Trinity that we would not simply be outside of the fellowship and the love and the intimacy of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we would be loved by them and experience them loving up on us even as we love them and love one another and are loved by one another. But back to Jesus positioning himself in prayer. Look at verse 13. 
But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The first thing that I want you to see, and I want you to see three things as, as we observe Jesus praying. Now this is sacred ground here, folks. I tremble even as I stand before you to speak. I stand before God and I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to mess this up. This is perhaps the most sacred, intimate moment between Christ and God that we see in the Scriptures. Now, I know the cross, but on the cross, there was distance. We see Christ intimately, but God is quiet, seemingly having abandoned His very own Son who positions Himself there as sin. But here, He positions Himself as a priest. Now, I want you to see three things. I want you to see that He is totally conscious of what's going on. And I want you to see Him speaking to God as His Father. And I want you to see that what He speaks about is that the joy of His heart, His heart's greatest desire, would be fulfilled in us. So observe that He is totally conscious here in verse 13. This is what I want to dwell on during the first half of this message, is verse 13. I want you to see Him. I want you to visualize Him. We've just finished the Passover meal in the upper room that He had sent His disciples to reserve for them to celebrate that Thursday night. The terrible weekend is ahead. Good Friday will prove to be disastrous crucifixion Friday. It's good for us on this side of the cross and our pardon being accomplished. But the terrible weekend is less than 24 hours away. But he's still in the upper room at this point. We finish the Passover meal. Judas has left. Christ has washed our feet. And he has been speaking to us about going away. And our hearts are frightened and we're troubled. We're feeling a sense of abandonment. He's leaving and we're not. And if it's true that they're going to kill you, they're going to kill us. We're starting to feel like little children without a home. We're starting to feel very, very afraid that he's going to leave us and he's going to leave us alone and by himself, by ourselves as he's physically not going to be around anymore. He concludes his remarks and then as we began last week he begins to pray. I believe that he would have had, a, they would have pushed away from the table and that he would have gone to another room or maybe even the roof itself and he would have begun to pray. Now, we're not clear on how John knew what he prayed to record it in the Bible. We certainly know that the Holy Spirit, the Bible is written by holy men, 
men that are set apart by God, not sinless, but men that are set apart, and that He has spoken to them, He's inspired them so that what they write is, is correct. This is, as it were, verbatim, it's truth of what Christ prayed. But I believe that John overheard Christ praying. I believe that John would even turn and now as he's writing these words some 30 years later, I believe that he would have spoken them to disciples that would have been equally troubled about being left in a hostile world in fear that they would be left alone. But Jesus Christ prays for them and he prays for them as they will remain, that they will be protected, that they will be kept pure, and that they will be one. They will be one, perfectly one in love with one another and with the Father. Jesus Christ, it says in verse 13, as he prays, I believe, on that rooftop, overheard by John and the other disciples, an intimate moment interceding for us, his people, speaking to God the Father. It tells us in verse 13, Now I'm coming to you. This is a Barnes & Noble napkin. So I didn't, strikingly, I, I, I actually met somebody there uh, and was had a few minutes and I read, and I didn't have paper, I even had to borrow a pen from the, the coffee gal because... I just read a book, and I thought it was a noteworthy remark. It was called, uh, called Chasing Daylight, How My Forthcoming Death Transformed My Life. Uh, Eugene Kelly, who wrote this book, for 33 years, he worked for KPMG, which is one of the top four accounting fir firms in the nation. And he was the CEO and he was diagnosed with uh, a brain tumor. And so he subsequently was given a short time to live, and so he was facing his death. And he recalls an instance in Caddyshack where Bill Murray was talking about being a caddy at one point to the Dalai Lama. And that is, he was a caddy for the Dalai Lama, he... He worked really hard, but at the end of the round, the Dalai Lama walked off without giving him a tip. And he said, hey, Dalai Lama, don't you have a little something for me? And he said, yes. On your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. And Bill Murray goes on and says, so... I got that going for me, which is kind of nice. Eugene O'Kelly says, Before my illness, I had considered commitment as the king among virtues. After I was diagnosed, I came to consider consciousness as king among virtues. I began to feel that everybody's first responsibility was to be as conscious as possible all the time especially later in life, especially toward the very end, for one thing, it could actually help others to understand the end that we all face better. 
Jesus, it says here in verse 13, I'm coming to you conscious, totally conscious, totally aware. In other words, he's staring at the weekend of his death. He doesn't deny it. He's not afraid of it. He's dealing with it. And notice what he does is he prays. And not only does he pray, but secondly, he sees prayer as speaking. It says here that he, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in this world. Do you believe that we'll pray in heaven? Do you think we just pray in this world or do we pray in heaven? Well, if you see prayer as Jesus sees prayer, prayer is an intimate conversation with God. And if we speak to God, then we will speak to Him not only in this world, but the next world. I can't stay very long in this because my time is almost done with the first half, but would you consider why you don't pray more? Could it be that you're defining prayer as something that Jesus did not define or see prayer as? That it's not a high holy priest coming in with a special garment? You know, I mean, can I be crass? You ever prayed in a bathroom? That's okay. You know, you ever prayed in a shower? It's okay. It's okay. Or do you have to pray like a, a Pharisee? Everything I've got to have my life right. I've got to be right. I've got to wear the right clothes. I've got to pray the right words. That will kill it. That will kill it. We fall so far short of that. Prayer is a conversation. And time and time again, I find in my life that God, when I'm fully conscious of my surroundings, and I began to get desperate, he, will, he loves to hear me speak out of my desperation. A lot of times then, I've just I've cut off all the frills and the positioning myself, and I come as I am, a very, very dependent child. Thirdly, notice here as we observe Jesus praying on this rooftop, as we visualize Him praying, that not only is He conscious of his, what's going on. And not only out of that does he speak to God, he speaks freely to God. But he asks for something very specific. He says that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, before I leave, that seems like a, a rather abstract thing. His joy. What was his joy? Well, if you look in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says that we should look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the goal? 
It wasn't simply to return to God the Father. That wasn't the joy. He had that already. Why leave? He left to achieve and to accomplish and to reach a desire, a joy that required him to leave, required him to endure the cross. And I put before you that joy was you. The joy that he wanted was us. And us in relationship with him and with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. That 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 was visited before the fall, that relationship that we had prior to the fall in Genesis 3.16, that he would restore us in relationship with God. That was his joy. If you look, Across to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given to me. The word there for see means a long, extended, sustained sight and observation. And he's saying, that's what I'm praying. Is that they'll never take their eyes. They'll never take their eyes off of the relationship that is now accomplished. Now for you grammatical scholars, the English language fails us here. Because the word there, for that my, that my joy may be fulfilled, that it may be fulfilled in them, is the word for it has been fulfilled in them. It boggles the mind, but it is a past, it's a passive, it's a participle to say that it's already accomplished. It's not something, it's something that he is praying for, and it's a promise, and it will be done. And what will it look like? It'll look like three things that I will be protected from the evil one, that I will have and I will see with my heart, that I will see, I will see that I'm protected and that I am not alone. And number two, I will see that I am sanctified. Oh, I won't see it here. When I look in the mirror, it is far from me. But may I see what he sees. May I see not a child looking at myself as a child, but may I see through the Father's eyes that I'm set apart and I'm pure in His sight. And may I see, may I dwell on it with sustained vision that I'm in a community, that I'm in a fellowship, that I have a family, and that in, out of this great love, out of this joy, that is being fulfilled in my life out of the desire that we would understand His glory. His glory was the rescue mission that He accomplished. His glory is that we who were formerly enemies are day by day being more and more shaped into His little boys, His little girls, His sons, His daughters, and it's already accomplished in the heavens. And now we can join the party. You know, there is no terror, not in this prayer. It says in chapter 18, he will leave this, and we'll start looking at this next week. 
But he's going to leave the upper room in chapter 18 and go to that private garden. But there's no anxiety. There's no angst. There's no agita. There's no, there's no fear in this. He is confidently coming before God and saying, God, I want what you want. I love what you love. I hate what you hate. That's holiness. Loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And he says, we are of one mind. I protected them while I was in this earth. And I protected them by your name. That they chose to follow me as the rabbi and bear the name of a follower of Christ. And now, Father, we shall protect them. And we pledge In this prayer, we pledge, as I'm speaking to you, we pledge to protect them. We pledge to purify them more and more and more, transforming them so that you get the picture that they are transformed men and women who not only love one another, but love one another out of the love that we've experienced. A couple of takeaways, okay? You're saying, well, now, what about, now I've been hitting on the second half of the outline. But let me try to be very, very practical as to what this looks like in just a few minutes in the time that remain. If you look, if you look at your outline, you see that Jesus Christ does pray. If you look at verse 16, he says, they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And he's previously said, That this world is a world that is going to hate them. And he says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And some of you have a footnote that says it could be evil or it could be evil one. I want you to know that Jesus is a realist. And he would have us neither run away from evil and insulate ourselves somehow and try to protect ourselves from evil, nor that we would run out on our own and try to slay evil and call it out and, and, you know, legislate morality. He calls us to live in this world And where we are called to engage, that we would neither run away from or run into, but that we would engage knowing that he is with us and has already prayed that we will be protected, but we will face it. Kenneth Bailey, on this idea of is it evil or is it evil one, says this. There is a demonic energy that breaks out in people, societies, and nations that acts with the force of a guiding evil mind. I don't want to distract you by going into any of the particulars, but I found myself on Tuesday night in an auditorium faced with people that can at best be said to disagree with me. At one point, I came to feel that they were so hostile and so angry at 
at my, the things that I had shared, that I was afraid. Oh, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid physically that they were going to harm me. But there have been three times in my life that I have felt like I was in the presence of evil. And I am not, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the people in the audience were evil. But it's, it was that there was a force there that was palpable. There was a philosophy that was being propagated that was demonic and, and diabolical. And it was as if it was as if you've got God's way and man's way. And man's way was was coming, an evil way was coming up like a great black crest, and I felt like it's just going to wash me away. I felt so small. I felt stupid. I felt insignificant. I felt very alone. I was scared. It was as if there was a real personality of evil in that room regarding an issue. And then... I've got, I'm, I'm a silly person, so I've, I've got funny little things that I carry in my pocket. This morning I actually have a, it's a plastic manatee. And when I touch that, I realize that I may look just like a big old fat manatee with small arms to you, but you know the thing that protects me when I feel so small and insignificant? Because, see, Satan's an accuser. And that's way, the way he gets at us. And we need protection about that. I can't even protect myself because I find myself agreeing with him. But we're protected when we remember the joy that is being fulfilled in our heart. And that is that I am somebody in God's eyes. I am somebody's child. He is my father. And he looks at me, and like those first Spanish explorers in Florida, when they saw the manatees come up with the seaweed on their hair, they say, it's a mermaid! Martin Luther, and not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther said this, Satan accuses me and must always be met. He comes to me and he says, you're a sinner and you are damned because of your sin. And I say, Christ has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you should not prevail against me when you go about to terrify me and setting forth the greatness of my sins. And so bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred for myself, contempt, and even blaspheming God. For as often as you object that I'm a sinner. You call me to remember, to see the benefit of Christ my Redeemer, upon whose shoulders and not upon mine lie all my sins. For the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wherefore, when you say, Satan, I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but you comfort me above all measure. Why? Because I have to remember once again that I'm protected by this accuser by a different word. I'm protected by the word of the gospel. 
And whenever John here in this, this, his gospel talks about, verse 17, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the good news. And what is the good news for our heart? Is that I am no longer an enemy. I'm no longer a despised one. I'm his child. I'm protected by that. Secondly, it sets me apart. Time does not permit me to go as I had wished to Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9. But you see in verse 19 here, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Consecrate is a synonym for sanctify, but John is up to something. He uses two words for being set apart and being washed and being clean. Consecrate, we think about consecrating something, washing it, purifying it, setting it apart. We think about sanctifying, it can be the same thing. Sanctifying really means more setting something apart and declaring it pure or for a noble use. But John is up to something. Jesus, we also know, led a sinless life. In Leviticus 8, we find that the priest had to go through all of these ceremonial washings of both himself and of his clothing in order as a sinful man to even go in to have an audience with God. Jesus led a perfect life. He did not need to be washed ceremonially. There was no sin that needed to be atoned for in his life. So what does he mean when he says, I consecrate my sinless life? Leviticus 9. Leviticus 9 says that in order to speak with God as the high priest, you had to bring a sacrifice. In order to represent the sins of the people that you wish for God to forgive, you had to bring an animal without blemish. Without blemish. It had to be consecrated. And so what Jesus is saying here is that I am both Father, I'm the priest, and I'm the sacrifice. I'm the priest, and I'm the sacrifice. Both are acceptable to you. And if you receive my intercession, and you receive my life and sacrifice, then the result will be to set them apart and declare them as holy. I probably struggle to think that I am a pure man in God's eyes more than anything else because I see my sin. But it's true. It's true. And it doesn't cause me to be more sinful. It humbles me and it makes me want to be holy. And remember how I'm defining holiness. Holiness is to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Why would I love them? Because I love Him. It's not a law. It's love. If He would do that for me, if He would set me apart as His beautiful Son, through His Son, then what will I not do for Him? I'll do anything for Him. And when He speaks, I count it as truth. And when He speaks His Word to me, the gospel and reminds me of how he sees me that fuels me to follow him and guess what as I said earlier it's that same word where you see in verse 19 
that they also may be sanctified? Let me remove all doubt. That also may be is once again completed. It's they already have been sanctified. And he's even yet to go to the cross. But in this prayer, he's saying it's a promise. And the Father says, I'll keep that promise. But there is a cross in store for them. The final thing that he prays for is he prays that they would have a perfectly, they would be perfectly one in love and relationship with one another. If you look at verse 26, Bruner in his commentary says that this verse, and it's a big commentary, you know, you would, you would think that it would be a pretty special verse that he would say this about, but he said this one verse, verse 26, is the greatest verse in all of the Bible. He said because what he is praying here is not that we would simply see and be reminded that we are the objects. We're the objects of God's affection through Christ but that we would see and grow in the love that we have for Christ the Son just as God has for Christ His Son. In other words, we would not only receive love, but God would place in our heart a love that transforms us to love Jesus as much as God the Father. That would cause us to so be loved and to love him that it would bring about this common union, this community of men and women that have a perfect, as it were, circle of love. Let me do the math for you. That would mean this. That would mean that you realize that God loves you not a little bit less but as much, it sounds like heresy, but it's not, that God loves you no less than he loves Jesus. Wrap your mind around that. God loves you no less than he loves Jesus. If you're in union with Jesus, that's what he's praying. And we have a growing love, and he will get us there. My love is so shallow now, but he is going to get us there where I will love Jesus no less than God the Father or the Holy Spirit. Now, what will that do in our love relationships with one another? That's the vision for Two Rivers. And we were prayed for way back then on that rooftop, rooftop by Jesus Christ that our community would look like that. A community that is confident even in the face of evil because we're protected by the accusations of the evil one. A community that is pure and moving on, not in our own strength, but to see ourselves even as God sees us and to want to be more of that. And all the while, loving one another even as we're loved by his power, transforming power. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
May your promises be answered with amen. May the promises that Jesus spoke to you about and that you affirm be granted and may we know that they are being granted. Father, for the one that feels so alone and so afraid, meet them with the promise of your protection. Father, for the one that feels so dirty, so shame, so guilty, so alone in their sin, meet them with the promise that in Jesus Christ is forgiveness and wholeness in an instance when we turn it over to you. In an instant. Father, for the one that feels so alone, so rejected, so betrayed, so alienated from community, Father, would you love them through the body of your people, through the church, through brothers and sisters, through sons and daughters. Send someone to them now to tangibly show them love. And may we connect the dots and realize that they are loving us even as you love them and love us. Father, I ask these things, even as they are your will, the very joy and desire of Christ to be fulfilled in our lives. And I pray in his name.